Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. So I wanted to show you that for uh, two reasons. The first of all is this, uh, we all have regrets. There's no such thing in life as no regrets. It's just, it's, it's a fallacy, it's just not true. And the second reason is this, regret is all over the Easter story. Now, y'all know the baseline for the Easter story, right? I mean, Jesus dies on a cross for our sins, for, for the forgiveness, paying our debt, and everyone thinks he's dead and to everyone's shock and awe and amazement, he comes back to life. The tomb is empty. And over a period of 40 days, he proves he's alive by showing himself to thousands of people. I mean, that, that's the Easter story. And so we bank on the fact that, that he died for our sins. And we have this trust that we get to go to heaven. We have a relationship with God today because of it. Now, I could tell you that Easter story. I'm just going to take an, maybe a different tact on it this morning. And talk about it from the basis of regret. There's this ongoing study called the American Regret Project. You can Google this later. (laughs) Over 4,000 people were asked, how often do you look back on your life and wish you had done things differently? Here it is. 99% said they had regrets to some degree or another. A whopping 82% said that their regrets were at least occasionally a part of their lives, if not all the time, which makes Americans far more likely to experience regret than they are to floss their teeth. So Dr. Bob, my dentist in the audience, my apologies. 1%, less than 1% of those surveyed said that they had no regrets. And I think we just watched a video of one of them. Where am I getting this information from? Uh, there's an author. He's a five-time uh, best-selling uh, author, and he, he wrote this book called The Power of Regret. His name is Daniel Pink, and he, he says this, like, um, the regrets can become transformational, and they can become a powerful force in your life if you handle them well. The problem is this. Most of us just don't handle our regrets really well. But the thing that I thought was fascinating was in his book, he takes regrets and he puts them into four different buckets. And that's different than most Christians do, right? We put regret into one bucket and we're like, oh, that's a sin. We messed up. We're wrong. I have regrets. Therefore, we just need forgiveness. And then we need to move on and hope we don't do that stuff again, right? Well, it's much more complicated than that. And so I'm going to walk you through his four buckets and show you how they appear all over the Easter story. Here's the first one. And if you're taking notes, you're welcome to do this. There's a list of four regrets, four places they show up in the Easter story. If you don't want to take notes, that's, that's up to you. Here it is. The first one is this. Moral regrets, right? Moral regrets are kind of what Christians think about. It's when we violate a value that we held dearly. So you believe in a value. Let's say, I don't want to lie. I always want to tell the truth, Right? Or maybe you have this value of loyalty to your family and friends. But somewhere along the way, we violate the things that we hold as values. And what we're left with are moral regrets. It's not living up to to these values. Um, But get this, this is super interesting. When those 4,000 people were asked about their regrets, this is actually the smallest bucket. Only 10% of people referred to their, their moral regrets 
Now, where does, uh, where does a moral regret show up in the Easter story? There's this guy who was crucified right next to Jesus. We know him as the criminal or the thief, and he has this major moment of moral regret. Jesus is uh, nailed to the cross, and he wasn't crucified there alone. It says that on either side of him were these criminals. This is how it reads in the book of Luke. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal, he rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. And then he says this, listen, we are punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, looking at Jesus, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The thief at this moment He's having a huge moment of moral regret. What does he say? We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. Think about that as a, as a confession. He's saying, listen, we're wrong. We broke the law. We broke our moral values. And now we're facing this horrible death. We're getting what we deserve. It is a clear moral regret. And Jesus, he responded to these men in, in two different ways. I actually skipped a verse as I was kind of reading that story. I skipped it because Jesus spoke these words when he was on the cross right after the thief is introduced. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I think as he's on the cross, he's looking at the people who are just crucifying him and the the people in front of him, the Roman soldiers, and he's like, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But he says it within earshot of the thief on the cross, and the thief on the cross is like, what? Forgiveness for these guys? They're killing you. But in his moral regret, he's like, wait. If you would forgive them for that, Maybe you would forgive me for what it is that I've done. So here's what he says to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What? (laughs) You're about to enter into a place when you die called paradise. I mean, it's it's a clear reference to heaven, right? Which means that this man was about to be forgiven. And to be real honest, none of us really like this story. (laughs) Because you're like, well, that's not fair. He was just a bad dude all his life, and all of a sudden at the last minute, you're like, yeah, you're forgiven. We don't like the story unless it was us. Saying, Jesus, uh, hey, remember me. And to hear those words, today you'll be with me in paradise, we would gladly accept this. I think it's that heaven is a clear reference, or that word paradise is a clear reference to heaven, that this man was forgiven. Don't miss this. The Easter story is about Jesus meeting our moral regrets with the offer of forgiveness. That's the Easter story. And for my moral regrets and for your moral regrets, Jesus will meet you with love this Easter. He'll meet you with forgiveness this Easter. But that's not where regret ends. There's another place in the story where it shows up. And it's the second bucket, and it's called this. It's called a foundation regret. Foundation regrets are this. It's when we fail to make the small right decisions that compound to this really negative outcome. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, You say, you know, I'm going to save towards retirement. But then there's these shoes that come on sale. Well, the latest gadget. And the budget's tight, but you're like, oh, we want to retire one day. And then there's this timeshare offer. Well, it was incredible. It was such a good offer. 
And there's these little small decisions that aren't necessarily bad or wrong in and of themselves, other than the fact that they accumulate to the fact that you never retire and lead to a bad result. Or we, we fail to make some, some small good decisions that would lead to a good result, but because we fail to make them, they lead to a, a, a bad result. In the middle of this, where does it show up in the Easter story? There's a guy there at the cross. He's only known not by his name, but just by his title. He's the centurion. He's a career soldier. He's in charge of a hundred men. He's a leader in the Roman army. And we don't know if he actually picked up the hammer. And he was the one who hammered the spikes through Jesus' hands or through his feet. Or if he was, or he was just ordering it and he was overseeing the process. But Jesus' crucifixion, when he witnessed it, when he was a part of it, when he led it, it was different than any other crucifixion that he had led. The Bible describes it this way. Over top of Jesus' head, they had nailed this sign that said, the king of the Jews. The, The execution started at nine in the morning and about noon, it says this, that darkness, not a cloud, but darkness came over the entire area. There's this powerful earthquake that shakes And somehow, never before had he heard the words coming from someone who he was crucifying. But Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And all of this whole experience, after seeing all of this happen, the the centurion realizes this wasn't just an ordinary death. He actually spoke these words. Listen. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, quote, surely this man was the son of God. Can you imagine that moment for him? This moment of regret. He's in charge. Yeah, of course, he's just following orders, right, from Pilate, the governor, who had sentenced him to death. But you're the one in charge of his execution, and you just had this realization. I just killed the Son of God. Oh, he is never going to forgive me for treating his son like that. It's a moral regret, right? Because he did the wrong thing. But I'm wondering if it's not a foundation regret. And what I mean by that is, here's this man who at some point in his life as an adult is sitting there and, and he had made a series of decisions, right? Somehow I, I'm going I'm to join this army. I'm going to be a soldier. He, he's making the choice not to be the doctor that his mom wanted him to be. It's between the lines of the story, Okay. He chose to be in Jerusalem. He chose to follow his leaders. And maybe he even chose to be the one who oversees resurrections, right? It's a series of small decisions that leads him to this bad moment in his life where he just realizes, I just killed the Son of God. I wonder if he thought this. What a waste my life has been. It's interesting. We don't know anything else about this guy. This... One act is what history would remember him for. When I read his story, I can't help think of a bunch of us who've been in the workforce for a lot of years. We've raised families. And everything hasn't turned out how we had probably hoped. And if we just pause and wonder, did my life ever make a difference? Or was my life wasted? I think this man is having a foundation regret the same way that we would have a foundation regret. But remember, when Jesus was on the cross, he would have heard him speak these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
And I just wonder if those words grabbed the heart of this centurion and just ripped it wide open and maybe it actually changed his life because his regret actually drove him to God. Now, I have this theory. I can't prove it. I'm not sure it's true. So if you don't like it, just disregard it, okay? But I, I'm just wondering, like, how, how did Mark, when he wrote about this, how did he know? I mean, Mark's getting his message from Peter, but how does Peter know that that's what the centurion said at the cross? Unless at some point this centurion had a transformational moment and said, I just killed the Son of God, and somehow he repented from that, and he got hooked up with this crew of Jesus' followers who were later writing the story, and he's like, listen, I was there, and let me tell you, this is what I said at that moment. Now, I can't prove that. I'm, I could just be totally making it up, so Lord, forgive me. Sorry about that. But I just wonder if that moral regret and foundation regret led to a change in his life. Hey, if you're at a place in your life and you're like, man, I've got some foundation regrets, just know this, God will meet you with love and God will meet you with forgiveness this Easter. Third bucket here, it's a boldness regret. What's a boldness regret? It's uh, when you played it safe. (laughs) You wish you would have taken a risk. I wish I would have gone back to school, asked that girl out, spoken up. I mean, these are are regrets of inaction. You you should have taken action. You should have done something and you didn't do anything about it. And there's a guy in the story who probably should have done something and he didn't. His name? His name is Joseph. So after Jesus dies on the cross, this guy enters the story. We don't know a lot about him. I'm going to read you this text to tell you his story but he has a tremendous boldness regret. Here's how it reads. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate gave the body of Jesus to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in the empty tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Did you miss his boldness regret? I guarantee 100% of you did. It's wrapped up in this little short phrase of who this guy is. Joseph, a member of the council, he was a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision. What does it mean that he's a member of the council? You know what council it is? It's the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin council. This is the council that had him arrested, had Jesus arrested, brought him in the middle of the night into this sham trial. And Joseph is there because he's a part of this council. Now think about this for a minute. They're accusing Jesus of all kinds of things and they, they, can't, they can't find any, uh, anything to stick against him, any accusations to stick. And Joseph is there. Luke says this about him. Joseph, he's a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision. He disagreed with what was happening. But you know what's interesting? All four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all mention Joseph. And you know what all four gospels are absent of? Joseph standing up in the middle of this trial to go, time out, guys, this ain't right. First of all, it's against the law for us to hold a trial in the middle of the night because you're not, you're not supposed to be able to find witnesses then. And we're going to accuse him in the middle of the night? This isn't right. Joseph never stands up for him until after he's dead. And it literally says that he took his body off the cross. Think about this for a minute. He's the one who pulled the spikes out of his arms and his feet and took him down, wrapped his body in a cloth, and then picked him up and carried him to the tomb. 
But I think what Joseph carried with him was not just the weight of Jesus' body. I think what Joseph carried with him was the weight of a boldness regret because he didn't stand up for him. See, Joseph doesn't know, nobody does, that Jesus is going to come alive in three days. And so he carries the weight of, I should have said something. I should have stood up for him. I shouldn't have remained silent. But know this, the resurrection's coming. So Joseph's regret would be met with new life. Because Jesus, when it all seems like it's over, it just ain't the end of the story. And so I I want you to hear this, that if you carry regrets in your life, I want to remind you that it doesn't have to be the end of the story because your regrets, your boldness regrets, I could have, I should have, can be met with a brand new life that Jesus offers you because this today doesn't have to be the end of your story. God's in the business of taking our regrets and bringing in new life. And I just want you to hear this. He has new opportunities for you. He has something new in front of you if you'll follow him if you'll give your life to him. See, he's not a dead God. He's our risen leader who we follow, and he's with us today. There's a fourth and final one. It's a, it's a connection regret. Here, here's what a connection regret is. Uh, you're tight with people, right? Your family, your friends, but somehow you lose this connection because of rift or drift. <laughs> the rift, there's a conflict, right? Somebody's feelings get hurt. Somebody responds, and this relationship is just, it's broken, right? Sometimes it's not a rift. We all get this right. There's drift. I mean, you were friends. Maybe you were even family. And somehow you just lost connection. You both allowed the drift to go through. Did you know this? Moral regrets are only 10% of people's regrets. The largest bucket? Connection regrets. So who had the largest connection regret in the Easter story? His name is Peter. Most of you probably know his story. I mean, if I went back in, in time before Jesus actually died on the cross, uh, he's having a dinner with his followers, and he says this, Peter, pay attention. You're going to deny me. You're going to swear in the near future that you don't even know me. They go to this garden. Jesus is arrested, and Peter, like, quietly sneaks behind the trees. He shows up to this courtyard where the trial is going on. Joseph of Arimathea is there, not standing up for Jesus. And Peter's warming himself by the fire, and the servant girl walks by, and she's like, aren't you one of them? You're like one of those Galileans. I can tell by the way you talk. Like, you're a Galilean, right? You're one of those Jesus people. He's like, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not one of those Jesus people. Three times he gets called out. And by the third time, he just, he says, I swear to you, I swear to you, I'm not one of them. I don't even know that man. And Luke, when he writes about this moment, this is what he says. The minute that it comes out of Peter's mouth, he writes, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Man, the weight of regret at this moment. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Bitter tears of regret. And Peter was his guy, right? Jesus had plans where Peter was going to take over. He was going to lead the crew once he was gone. And Peter just broke, not through drift, but through rift. And weeps these bitter tears of regret. And if I could fast forward to that Sunday morning... We're that group of women. They go to the tomb and they want to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial because he's been dead. And instead of a body, they find this empty tomb. 
The stone had been rolled away. It's empty. There's no body there, but there's a guy standing there. It says he's dressed in all white. I don't know. It means he's a good guy. Probably an angel. He speaks these words. He says this. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? He's like, come on in. Come on inside. Take a look. And then he says this. But go tell his disciples and Peter. It would have been enough. He would have said, hey, go tell his disciples. But essentially he says this. I want you to go tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter, that loser. Tell Peter, the denier. Tell Peter, the guy with that connection regret, the guy who turned his back on me, failed me, the guy who thinks he's worthless, that there's no future in front of him, who doesn't think that God is ever going to give him an opportunity again. You make sure that Peter gets this message. Here's the message. Jesus is going ahead of you into this place called Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus extends this invitation to Peter, who right now is just filled with regret to come and meet him. And if, if you know the story, Peter's out fishing, Jesus is on the shore. This long story short, Peter and Jesus are on the shore. And Jesus asks him this question. He goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? You can see Peter get choked up, right? I know I didn't claim you before, but Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus turns around. He says, then feed my sheep. Jesus could have said, hey, listen, Peter. I love you too. But listen, you messed up, and so you're out. But he doesn't. The most powerful thing that Jesus could say at this moment is, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. You don't have to start at the bottom of the totem pole of this group. Uh, You're not useless. You're not an outcast in in our group. You're not the black sheep of the group. You're going to be the one in charge. I want you to take care of my people. You're going to run the crew. The one who failed him the greatest, he invites him to be forgiven of his deep, deep regret. Because Jesus, I think, is making it abundantly clear that your regret should not keep you from following Jesus. But despite your regrets, Jesus wants a friendship with you. Because listen, come on, come on. Y'all here at Easter, I'm so glad you're here. But maybe there's a time in your life where you and Jesus were like this. And whether through rift or drift, you walked away. He hadn't seen you for a long time. And I don't mean in church. I mean you haven't talked to him in a long time. And there's been this connection regret. Can I just tell you this? I know because of who he is in this story and how history records him that he will meet you with love, forgiveness, grace, and a reconnection with him. He'll meet you with hope and a new life. Those are the four buckets of regret And I just know this, our regrets will be met with love, forgiveness, hope, and new life. But I believe it's our choice of what it is we want to do with our regrets. So I'm going to finish with this. Ready? Regrets can do one of two things. If you have heavy regrets, it can either drive you from God or it can bring you to God. There's this scripture, I'm going to read it to you, about a group of people um, who they got called out on their regrets. They got called out on all the things that they had done wrong. And they were sorrowful. I mean, they, they, they felt the weight of regret. And they call it their distress. They were distressed over this. And this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. 
The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets. They end up on a deathbed of regrets. And if you have pain, sorrow, regret in life, it leaves you with a choice to allow that to drive you to God or drive away from God. Now, here's the truth. There's no way I'm going to handle everything about regrets in a 25-minute talk, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. Next week, I'm going to start a brand new series called No Regrets, all right? (laughs) And I'm going to walk us through an in-depth deal about how we can deal with those four buckets of regrets. I just know that in a moment like this, I'm not sure everybody's able to process the stuff that's going, in, going on inside them. So can I just invite you, only if you have regrets, right, to join us for those four weeks, because I want you to find a brand new freedom, joy, and hope in life. Because I think the story of the scriptures is how we, humanity goes from regret to hope. So I hope you'll join us for that. But as we wrap up, I, I do know this, that today Jesus invites you. He invites you the same way he invited Peter. To bring whatever regrets you have and bring them to him. And I will tell you this, you will find hope. Because we don't follow a dead God. We follow a God who is living and alive today and wants relationship with you. So I can guarantee you that your regret will be met with love. He loves you. I guarantee you that your regret will be met with forgiveness because of the scoundrels he forgave in here. I guarantee that your regret will be met with a new life. And hope. So even though we're doing a four-week series on regret, it might be today that, yeah, you get it. You're like, I'm done carrying my regrets. I don't want them anymore. And so here's what I want to do today. I just want to give you an opportunity to say, yeah, can I trade that? Can I trade my regrets and receive love, forgiveness, hope, and new life with Jesus? Because some of you, you might need that today. And I would love to provide that opportunity For you to say, God, I got regrets and I don't want them anymore. I've carried them too long. I don't want the life that I'm currently living. I I need forgiveness because I carry some more regrets. And so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. And if you want to pray with me, then do that. Can I just say it this way? You don't have to pray out loud for all your relatives that you haven't seen in a while to hear you, okay? (laughs) But would you pray this loud enough for you to hear you? And so let's do this for just a moment. Would you close your eyes? Let's bow our heads. I don't want to rush through this. I want to be super clear that if you want to make a life-changing decision today to be forgiven and start a relationship with God, then I want you to pray with me. Maybe some of you have never done this before. You've never become a Christian And this is that moment you're going to cross the line of faith. But I know that there's some of you that you prayed to receive Jesus before, and man, there's been a drift, a connection break. And I invite you to pray too with us because maybe it's time that you're you're ready to return. And so here we go. Whoever wants to pray this with me, eyes closed, heads bowed. Here we go. Jesus, I have regrets. But today I bring those to you. Jesus, forgive me. Thank you for your death. 
Your death paid for my sins. I believe that you love me. And today, you forgive me. And I commit to follow you in new life. New life with you today. And here's how I'd like to end. I want to pray for you. So just eyes closed, heads bowed. If you prayed that prayer, you just entered into a relationship with the living God. And I want to pray for you. And I don't want to do this in such a way that it embarrasses anybody. But I want you to know that you prayed that prayer today. And so do this, eyes closed, heads bowed. If you prayed that today, and you either became a Christian for the first time, or you reconnected with God, would you do this? I just want you to put your hand in the air. That was me. Do it right now. If you prayed that today, I see you. Good. The rest of you, keep your eyes closed. Heads down. Oh, I see you. Good. Yes. Balcony, I'm even looking at you. Okay. Good. (laughs) For all of you, raise hands. I want to pray for you. Lord, I ask that you would bless those who've raised their hands and prayed this prayer decision to trade their regret for new life, God. I pray that right now in this moment that they would know beyond a shadow of doubt that they are loved by you. I pray that they would know that there's a new life that you have for them. You invite them to follow you. You invite them to, to, to join you in this life journey. And God, there's a newness there. There's new hope. There's new opportunity. I, I would pray that this is not just a momentary thing for them, but they would step boldly into a new relationship with you. So thank you, God, for this moment and the new life that people are experiencing. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, church, how do we feel when people cross the line of faith and find new hope in Christ?